1864, Governor John N. Goodwin set his priorities for the inaugural legislature of the newly formed Arizona Territory. There were plenty of legislative priorities to go around, including actually setting up a body of laws to be used. And at the end of their 43 days of work, the members of that first session passed 40 bills, including the legal framework that was the Howell Code. And I know, I know, we covered all this more than 20 episodes ago, but I want to return to one salient point from that initial session that got passing mention at the time. If we were to travel briefly back to episode 51, I quoted Goodwin as saying, quote, Self-government and universal education are inseparable. The one can be exercised only as the other is enjoyed. The common school, the high school, and the university should all be established and are worthy of your fostering care. End quote. It's great rhetoric, and I wholeheartedly agree with his statements. But the legislature did nothing. Okay, that's not necessarily fair, as they did build a framework for an education system, but really they only gave Goodwin's injunction token observance. Mainly because, aside from putting some money aside for any county that was willing to match funds, a virtual impossibility, they failed to do the most important aspect of setting something up. Funding it. We'll ignore the arguments made at the time that Arizona was too sparsely settled and poor to really invest in schools, because, well, everyone in the territory made that argument to justify everything back then. So, for the rest of Goodwin's term, and then that of his successor, public education languished in Arizona. But seven years after Goodwin made his proclamation, finally someone came along to do something about the situation. Who that was and what he did is the subject of today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 73, The Little Governor. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we brought the 1870s to a close as the Chihannis, aside from Victorio and his very, very upset followers, were forced onto San Carlos once again. Geronimo and Hua also found themselves at the reservation, but they had at least come willingly and that seemed as good a time as any to stop the ever-forward narrative of the Apache Wars and turn our attention to other matters. So, let's hit the rewind button on the decade and head back to see what the Americans were up to throughout this period. Or, better said, what they were doing when they weren't contending with the Apache. We actually haven't touched on politics since way back in episode 57. So far back that I was still unmarried at that point, when we talked about the state capital being moved down to Tucson amid charges of some backroom shenanigans with then-Governor Richard C. McCormick. McCormick didn't stay governor long because almost immediately he ran for the position of Arizona's delegate to Congress and was voted into office with suspiciously strong support from Pima County. Taking his place in the governorship of the territory was another member of the so-called Federal Ring, the group of ardent pro-Union federally appointed office seekers that held power during this era. Namely, he was Anson Peasley Killen Safford. 
Safford was born in Hyde Park, Vermont, on February 14th in either 1828 or 1830. He apparently moved to Illinois as a boy as his family sought farming opportunities, where it appears that his education was pretty basic. Most of my sources point this out to contrast it with how well-read and educated he would be later in life. As a young man, Safford did what every other young man at the time was doing, moving to California to strike it rich. In 1850, he headed out west, though his prospecting career never seemed to get quite off the ground. Instead, his interest turned toward politics, and he started running for the state assembly, though his first foray in 1855 saw him defeated by a candidate from everyone's favorite short-lived political party, the Know-Nothings. But undaunted, he tried again and was elected in 1857 and 1859, where he was noted for being the chairman on the Committee of Education and working on a law to preserve school lands. When the Civil War broke out, Safford prudently switched his political party from Democrat to Unionist, and later the Republican Party. We next find him heading to the minefields of Nevada, where in 1862 he was elected the recorder of Humboldt County, which sits in the northeastern part of the state. His time in Nevada would hone his political career, as he would also serve as a county commissioner, mining recorder, secretary of Nevada's Constitutional Convention in 1863, president of the first Republican State Convention, and would be appointed Surveyor General of Nevada by President Andrew Johnson. He also appears to have taken a bit of time to travel through Europe for both, quote, culture and health, according to one source. Finally, I'll pass along that his time in Nevada also saw him acting as an Indian fighter every now and again, something that no doubt helped shape his views of things when he eventually made it down to Arizona. In 1867, as McCormick was securing his election to Congress and was on a four-month junket to Salt Lake City and San Francisco to discuss Indian matters, he consulted with Nevada's congressional delegation about who would be the best person to succeed him in the governorship. Safford was brought to his attention, and seeing as McCormick, as others were very keen to have a railroad brought through Arizona, they thought having a surveyor general in the hot seat would be a great thing. So his name was dutifully passed along to President Ulysses S. Grant, who nominated him for the post on April 3rd, 1869. The gig was secured for Safford with alacrity, and by July, he was in the territory and sworn into his office. Just to make sure Safford had all that he needed to do the job well, and by that I mean in line with the ring's interest, McCormick helpfully passed along a list of prominent individuals that the new governor should feel free to consult with. As it had with McCormick, this body of men and the Ring's coalition of federal patronage meant that Safford could count on exercising considerable political influence throughout his three terms as governor, the longest tenure of any of the territorial governors of Arizona, by the way. Over time, Safford would come to be affectionately known as the Little Governor, as he stood a mere 5 feet 6 inches tall, but was still an incredibly effective head of state. Because of the timeline for McCormick heading to take up his seat in Congress and Safford getting into his new posting, there would be no territorial legislature called in 1869. That meant Safford had nearly two years to really get the lay of the land before proposing any initiatives to be made into law. 
most sources like to say that Arizona was at this time bordering on a state of utter lawlessness. Personally, I think this might be hyperbole, but there was no doubt there was a host of issues affecting the territory. Remember that 1869 to 1871 were some of the bloodiest years of the Apache Wars, and Cochise was still on something of a rampage in between peace feelers. But more than that, John Wasson, the caustic newspaper editor we have dealt with several times before, and who also served as Arizona's Surveyor General, wrote, quote, He, that is Safford, found the territory almost in a state of anarchy. Many officers refused to obey the laws. The payment of taxes was resisted by some. Outlaws were coming from Sonora and robbing and murdering settlers along the border and as far north as the Gila River. The Apache Indians were atrocious in their thefts and murders, and the military authorities were nearly useless. There was no public school system in operation, and but one public school in the whole territory. There was not a railroad on the east nearer than Kansas. End quote. So Safford took all that in, made special trips to Washington to secure help, and prepared for the 1871 legislative session. When that session convened on January 11th, Safford, much like McCormick before him, made a centerpiece of his opening remarks dealing with the Apache problems that seemed to be everywhere. Safford was quick to say the federal troops were ineffective and called for a state militia to be organized and set out to actually get the job done. As a little bit of an aside, this militia actually was formed, but accomplished very little before Generals Crook and Howard finished their work with both the stick and the carrot. But at the time of his remarks, Safford said he didn't consider any place inside of Arizona safe from Apache depredations. Furthermore, as raiding and plunder were how the Apaches supported themselves, he did not see any other way to defeat them than through sheer military might. Also, because of the times he lived in, the governor then went on and on about the cruel, barbarous, and inhumane ways of the Apache. Finally, just to tie things back around to what we've talked about before, because of the continual threat of the Apache, Safford and McCormick joined forces to oust General George Stoneman, who was widely seen as being too lethargic and deliberate in his job. We covered that back in episode 62 in the aftermath of the Camp Grant Massacre. I don't want to deal too much with Safford's emphasis on the Apache, seeing as when he has made appearances in the podcast before, it was always to deal with the Apache issue, whether he was interacting with Crook, Collier, Howard, or Clum. Dealing with restless natives wasn't the only thing on his plate. Along with his militia, he requested 20 armed men to be sent to escort freight trains and passengers along the 150-mile road from Gila Bend to Fort Yuma. Dangerous and insecure, as is nearly every highway in the territory on account of the Apache Indians, Safford would write, I consider none more so than the Gila Road. But the problem here wasn't Apaches, it was bandits, although all politicians made sure to point out that these were always Mexican bandits. In his address to the legislature in 1877, Safford came down hard on banditry and lawlessness, crying that it was a, quote, scourge to civilization, a disgrace to humanity, and should be swept from the face of the earth as remorselessly as the most ferocious wild beast, end quote. He then came out in favor of making highway robbery a capital offense, 
punishable by death. And where would they keep all these outlaws they rounded up before they killed them? Why, in the new territorial prison, of course. In 1875, the legislature authorized the sale of $25,000 in bonds to help build the new prison, which was fully constructed and holding prisoners two years later when Safford gave his recommendation. The prison had almost gone to Phoenix, the rising star of the Arizona city scene, but some political maneuvering made sure it was situated on a bluff overlooking the Colorado River near Yuma. And by the way, it's now officially Yuma and no longer Arizona City, with the official change happening in 1873. I will also offer here that the territorial prison is still standing today and is in fact a state park. So if you are ever in the extreme southeastern corner of Arizona, it's definitely something you should stop and see. But the thing that was nearest and dearest to Safford's heart, and which is his main legacy today, was schools. Given how the first legislature spectacularly failed to fund the schools they professed to want, education in the territory of Arizona was really ad hoc. Since that first legislative session, various laws allowed for schools and school districts to be set up on a county level, but no taxes had ever really been levied to accomplish that. Most sources will tell you that Safford was simply mortified at the fact that there were 1,923 children in the territory between the ages of 6 and 21, but not one single public school to be found. There were a couple of private schools, one in Prescott and the other in Tucson, but Safford envisioned something a little more grand. For him, if you'll forgive a little armchair psychology, the boy who'd grown up in a rural area without the benefit of much formal education the ability to help others rise out of that same situation was paramount. In his inaugural message to the legislature in 1871, he said, quote, But the object most desirable to attain is the adoption of a school system for free public schools, so that the poor and rich alike can share equal benefits. In a country like ours, where the power to govern is derived from consent of the governed, it becomes a matter of vital importance and necessity if we are to protect and make permanent our republican institutions, that the people shall be educated. End quote. And not only were the schools to be free to the territory's citizens, but Safford also asked that laws be put in place to make attendance compulsory for all children. As surprising as it might sound to us today, nearly every single legislator objected to Safford's plan. At the root of everything was money. No politician likes being the one that just raised the constituents' taxes, after all. But they raised other objections as well. First off, past efforts to implement schools had failed miserably. Why would this be any different? Then there was the fact that the people were too poor to afford the proposed tax increase, and finally, wasn't the whole Apache situation more important to focus on? If your average farmer is too afraid to step outside of his own door, what's the point of forcing his kids to learn writing, reading, and arithmetic? But Safford had his vision and would not be dissuaded from it. The governor responded that past efforts to set up an educational system had failed, mainly because no one had sought to truly fund it in perpetuity. He also responded with a bit of foresight, and the casual racism of 19th century Americans, that one day the Americans would beat the Apaches, but, quote, 
Unless we educated the rising generation, we should raise up a population no more capable of self-government than the Apache themselves. End quote. Yeah, did I mention the casual racism of 19th century Americans? Anyway, Safford set to work persuading, cajoling, and placating legislators to get his bill passed. By the end of February 1871, a watered-down version did manage to get through, but as Safford said, quote, after striking out nearly all the revenue which had been provided, end quote. The law of 1871 was based on a similar California statute and was the first to levy a general tax across the entire territory to support education. Ten cents of every $100 of assessed property were to be collected and sent to the territorial treasury, earmarked for a specific account solely for schools. This tax would be collected at the same time as other territorial revenues, essentially making supporting schools on par with other services including law enforcement and the territorial government itself. Beneath that, it also authorized every county board of supervisors to levy a tax on its citizens, with penalties built in if the counties failed to act. So there was no choking off the push for schools because local authorities didn't want to go along with a program. If we keep narrowing our focus, if 10 families came together, they could petition to form a school district, which would have a three-member board of trustees. These trustees were empowered to levy a district tax if necessary to ensure that the school would be kept open at least three months out of the year, or they could even raise other taxes to extend that school year or to build new schoolhouses. In addition, the trustees were to provide and furnish schoolhouses and take a student census every single year. Back up at the macro level, a uniform series of textbooks were adopted, with required subjects being listed as spelling, grammar, reading, arithmetic, geography, and physiology. And just to make sure the whole project got off the ground, Safford himself acted in the capacity of Superintendent of Public Instruction for the Territory, and appointed probate judges to act in similar capacity at the county level. As I said, this issue was near and dear to his heart. And we know this for more than just the legislative push for public schools, but because of what he did next. The little governor took the act on the road. For the rest of his six years as the territory's lead official, he would visit nearly every single community in Arizona to promote education and implore settlers to set up school districts for the good of their children. It may have been hard at first, but he was encouraged by the results. Later, he would write, quote, A desire for schools soon began to appear among the people. We had no books nor teachers. All had to be procured in the older states. In the course of the following year, several schools were in successful operation. End quote. The first school to go into operation under the 1871 law opened in Tucson in March 1872, in a one-room adobe building at the corner of McCormick and Meyer Street that was rented at the princely sum of $16 a month. This school received all of the county's funds, though of course only a fraction of the county's 503 children could attend. At one point, attendance reached 138 students, which must have made the space feel positively sardine can-like. The rudimentary schoolhouse never had enough textbooks and the teacher, a Swiss immigrant named John Spring, had to spend half his time teaching his predominantly Mexican students English. 
His school contained splintery desks and benches, two brooms, a sprinkling pot for the dirt floor, and, in the words of one historian, quote, some ash-flogging sticks brought by parents who urged the teacher to use them liberally, end quote. By the next year, 1873, another school had been started that enrolled 42 boys and 21 girls, educated in separate rooms, you know, and was taught by two women who had been convinced to leave California by the persuasive Safford and John Wasson. Two years after that, the Congress Street School was built on the northwest corner of 6th Avenue in Congress. The founding of this school seems almost ripped from the pages of an old-time musical, where women raised money for the building through dances and bake sales, while men donated time, labor, and lumber to have it built. For a brief moment, it was the best school in the entire territory. Then Prescott got into the act. In 1876, the once and future territorial capital had built a two-story brick school that housed several teachers and a principal. The principal had been lured out west by Safford to teach, but would later go on to become the first full-time territorial superintendent of public education in 1879. Of course, all these school buildings could not be like they were in Prescott. Most were more rudimentary, with some being downright shoehorned into weird buildings, for example, the school that opened in Ehrenberg in 1872 under the direction of Mary Elizabeth Post was nothing less than an abandoned saloon, which meant her lessons were frequently interrupted when a prospector would wander in without realizing the change in the building's function. Post, by the way, was a New Yorker by birth who had also been persuaded to try a new career in the deserts of Arizona. She would teach at Ehrenberg for only five months before packing her bags and relocating down to Yuma, there she taught in an old adobe courthouse with three rooms, which included the jail cell. Post would actually spend the next 40 years teaching in Yuma, and unusual for her day when women were in scarce supply, she would never marry. She would always remain la maestra to all her students for the rest of her life. The first class to be held in Phoenix opened in the fall of 1871, though at that time it wasn't under Safford's 1871 law. Eventually, a new building would go up on Center Street, now Central Avenue, between Monroe and Van Buren, where the teacher would oversee 35 students. But once again, the building's floor was nothing more than dirt, though a contemporary newspaper article did mention that the community leaders were anticipating upgrading to the latest in-plank flooring sometime soon. To date, the best view we have of Safford's push for education is a short drive north of Payson. The historical Strawberry Schoolhouse, in the eponymous town off of State Route 87, was built in 1885, so a little more than a decade after Safford got the ball rolling, and is reputed today to be the oldest standing schoolhouse in Arizona. If you ever have the chance, definitely stop by this one-room log schoolhouse. You'll find it and I'm sorry, but I just have to say it, educational. There is one huge caveat to all of this. Safford was interested in public secular education and did not want his initiatives to extend to private religious schools. In the governor's opinion, no funds should be spent on parochial schools, which naturally put him at loggerheads with the local Catholic priest, who I might add had run the only real educational institutions prior to this time. His logic seems to have been that the sectarian schools by their nature were closed off and could not and would not be able to take education to the public at large. 
I can't find anything that says he had any particular antipathy towards religion, though he is on record as saying, quote, the school first, the church second, end quote. One source even said Safford was so interested in separating church and state that he proposed changing tax exemptions to allow religious property to be taxed unless it was expressly a school or hospital. In his parting address to the legislature in 1877, he summed up his views by saying, quote, To surrender this system and yield to a division of the school fund upon sectarian grounds could only result in the destruction of the general plan of education of the masses, and would lead, as it always has wherever tried, to the education of the few and the ignorance of the many. End quote. Attempts were made in the mid-1870s to change the education laws and split the funding between public and private schools, but this measure was soundly defeated in the legislature. And to deal with the negative PR from his run-ins with the Catholics and their schools, Safford enlisted the help of Estevano Choa, the de facto head of Southern Arizona's Hispanic, and largely Catholic, population. Though eventually some compromises were reached to have the parochial schools carry their fair share of the burden of making sure students knew their ABCs, the march toward an actual, functioning public education system was unstoppable. And Safford was right chuffed with himself for what had been established during his administration. There were other tweaks and administrative changes that would go on in future sessions of the legislature, but by 1873, there was enough funding to keep schools in all the territory's districts open for a whopping six months at a time. He wrote proudly in 1873 that, quote, Without books, schoolhouses, or teachers to commence with, in less than two years, the free school system has been fairly and successfully put into operation throughout the territory, end quote. Two years later, when he learned that in a short time a free public school would open in every district across Arizona, he wrote, quote, After four years' incessant labor, I have succeeded in obtaining means, books, and teachers for excellent schools, so that every child within the territory may obtain an education, end quote. But Safford probably felt the most pride in what these schools could do for their pupils, and he had one pupil in particular that he took interest in. Ignacio Bonillas was 12 years old when Safford started his education initiative. During one of his frequent school visits, the governor noticed that Bonillas, the son of a Mexican blacksmith, was not in attendance. So he tracked the boy down and offered to pay for his books and papers if he would return to school. Eventually, this arrangement morphed into something of a work placement program, as Bonillas would pay Safford back by feeding the governor's mules, sweeping his office, and shining his boots. As he grew up, Bonillas would actually help teach mathematics and Spanish, as well as help Safford in his correspondence with Mexican officials. He would later travel back east to attend a school you might have heard of, MIT, where he graduated with a degree in civil engineering in 1882. From there, his career went ever forward, and he would be tasked by the state of Sonora, Mexico, to help outline the town of Nogales. During the Mexican Revolution, he sided with the government of Venusticiano Carranza, who would appoint him the ambassador to the United States. Carranza also briefly supported Bonillas as a candidate to succeed him as president, though that was very short-lived due to the fact that it was all happening during the incredibly chaotic Mexican Revolution. But the point is, the blacksmith's son got to where he did thanks to the educational support he received in Tucson from Governor Safford and his policies. 
every government initiative needs a poster child, and in this case, it's Bonillas. Whatever you think about the public education system today, and there is a lot to say about that, there is no doubt that it wouldn't be where it is now without the work of Governor Safford. And I'm going to leave things right here for this week. I apologize for this episode clocking in a little under the average, but I want to hold off on other aspects of Safford's governorship, not to mention his successors, for upcoming episodes. In particular, next week's episode is going to focus on something that was exploding in Arizona at this time, which also had Safford's interest. Because what's the point of going into government if you can't set yourself up for the next stage of your career and make a killing in the one area that keeps luring people to Arizona time after time after time? Mining. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.